0: never before, never again. You can find that little phrase on the back of each of my family's photo yearbooks. Each year, we kind of collect the photos up and throw them into a yearbook, kind of working through the seasons. And at the end of it, typically, we'll put this little phrase, never before, never again. Uh, You can can bend that phrase in in funny ways, actually. Um, You can emphasize the fact that, well, we've, we've never experienced that before. Or you can emphasize that we never really want to go through that again. Um, There's a sense in which we can never relive the events of the past. Uh, For example, now that we're in 2019, uh, we'll never really relive 2018. But in another sense, we can find ourselves in in similar places and circumstances, can't we? Um, Maybe we struggled with depression in 2014. And we find that in 2019, we're struggling with it again. Or, Or perhaps we found ourselves... Uh, maybe exceedingly lonely in 2011. And while God some, brought, brought some relief the following year, when, when 2013 rolled around, we found ourselves doing battle with loneliness again. Maybe we battled cancer in 1992, but then in 2019 we're afflicted again. If you've lived long enough, then you know that life... Like a roller coaster, it it undulates, it moves up and down. Uh, life is like an ocean. There are there are waves and there are troughs between the waves. To use biblical imagery, there are are hills and there are valleys in this life. If you've lived long enough, then you know that when you've come into a valley again. uh, What do you do when you've been brought low? What do you do when you get stuck in a pit? again. Maybe the circumstances or the struggles are not exactly the same, but it's a pit. And, and, and you know it when you feel it because you felt it before. What do you do when you get stuck in a pit again? That's what Psalm 40 is about. The psalm that we're about to study together is about what do you do when you get stuck in a pit again? Now, maybe you think to yourself that this isn't really relevant to me. I don't, I don't know that I've ever been stuck in one of these metaphorical pits. Uh, well, don't worry. If you live, That's right. If you live long enough, you'll get stuck. Um, should the Lord Jesus tarry and should time continue to roll on, you'll find yourself in one soon enough. This is sadly a part of life in this fallen world. So you're going to need Psalm 40 to know how to get out. And I've got another bit of good news for you, too. After we look at Psalm 40 together, then you will know that at least this room full of people can help you when you get stuck. And you can help them, too. So so what is the message of Psalm 40? What insight can we gather from David about what to do when you're stuck in a pit again? Well, David's insight is, is surprising. When you get stuck in the pit again, David essentially says... Remember the last time God delivered you. Remember what He did before. And patiently plead with Him to do it again. Remember what happened before. And ask for God to do it again. That's what we're going to think about this morning as we turn and look at Psalm 40 together. If you're using one of the Bibles, uh, you can find the passage on page 468. Uh, Feel free to turn to Psalm 40 now. When you you make it to Psalm 40, I think you'll see that there's an inscription at the top of the psalm that says something to the effect of, to the choir master, a psalm of David. This reveals that David is not only the, the principal author of the psalm, but that he intended it for corporate worship. He intended the people of God to sing about when they get stuck in pits. To sing about the difficult times. The people of Israel would have sung this as they gathered. David, he doesn't provide us with the historical circumstances for this psalm. But that, I think, makes the psalm all the more useful to the people of God in worship. Ancient Israelites, as they came to the temple with their desperate situations, they could connect with what David says on a personal level. And we, too, can learn from this psalm and more readily apply it to our lives when we feel we are in a desperate and helpless situation. You see, if we knew what David was going through, it would actually be easier for us to dismiss this psalm, right? If we knew what David was going through, it would be easier for us to say, oh, oh David was during, enduring blank difficulty. I'm not going through that, so you know, that doesn't really matter to me. But the generic nature of David's trials through this, through this psalm, it affords us an opportunity to learn and apply and pray this psalm when we're facing the various trials that we encounter in this life when we're facing our own desperate and helpless situations. Psalm 40, it falls into two distinct halves or, or, or portions. In fact, there has been such a, a sharp division in, in this psalm, in the two sections of the psalm, that some scholars have wondered if, if somebody just kind of stitched together these two halves. Personally, I'm persuaded that this psalm was originally composed of one piece, even though there's significant overlap with Psalm 70 in the latter half of the psalm. So, so what division can be found in the psalm? Well, in the first 10 verses of the psalm, David ponders, he thinks about his past waiting on God and his, God's past mercy. And then in the remaining verses, in verses 11 to 17, David he ponders, he thinks about his present waiting and his present need for God to present his mercy to him yet again. One of the keys to understanding the psalm is understanding that David is presently in a pit of his own. He's in a miry pit again. David is in a desperate situation again. A situation that he needs to be delivered from. And in this psalm, David shows us what to do in our waiting. As we patiently wait, endure, and persevere through difficulty, we ought to recall God's deliverance in the past. We ought to recall God's past mercies while we plead for God to disclose His mercy yet again. That's the lesson of Psalm 40. Ponder God's past deliverance while you wait for His deliverance in the present. If you're taking notes, we'll study Psalm 40 under two headings. Past waiting and present waiting. Past waiting and present waiting. Let's turn our attention now to roughly the first half of the psalm where we find... David's reflections on his past waiting. Read Psalm 40, verses 1 to 10 now. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord Yahweh his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear burnt offering and sin offering you have not required then i said behold i have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me i delight to do your will o my god your law is within my heart i have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation behold i have not restrained my lips as you know o lord yahweh i have not hidden your deliverance within my heart i have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. In David's reflection on his past waiting, he remembers God's act of deliverance, verses 1 to 3. And this deliverance, it generates trust. You see there in verses 4 and 5. It encourages obedience, verses 6 to 8. And it provokes Proclamation Here in verses 9 and 10. Let's take a closer look at these elements in this psalm now as David reflects on his past waiting. You see there in verses 1 to 3, we're greeted with David's reflections on God's past deliverance. And one of the things that we need to understand about David's past deliverance is that it did not actually come right away. David was delivered, but he actually had to wait quite a while. David had to wait, you see there, patiently for the Lord to deliver him. That phrase, I waited patiently, can... He literally translated, waiting, I waited for the Lord. There's a double emphasis on David's waiting. David is saying he waited and waited and waited for the Lord's deliverance. Sometimes the Lord's deliverance takes time. Sometimes it's slow in coming. Have you ever waited for the Lord to deliver you from something? From some suffering? From some sin? Have you waited? Has the waiting uh, painfully stretched on and on and on. Maybe you've waited for weeks or you've waited months. Or maybe you've waited years. Have you considered that the Lord might be teaching you as you wait to trust Him and to trust Him and to trust Him? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting patiently or impatiently Are you crying out to the Lord? Has he turned to you? Has he heard your cry? How would you know? Well, like David, have you been delivered from a destructive pit? Consider this pit here we see in these verses. Uh, It's deep. David had to be drawn up from it, right? It's dangerous. He calls it a pit of destruction. It's inescapable. David couldn't get out of it on his own. It was slimy slimy and slippery and insecure. Those are the ideas kind of underneath those words, miry bog. Every step that David took plunged him deeper down. It was a bit like quicksand in that sense. All of David's efforts and energies could do nothing for him or his deliverance. David's deliverance had to be wholly, completely from God's hand. Yahweh had to stoop down. Yahweh had to scoop him up. Yahweh had to set his feet on a rock. Yahweh had to make David's steps secure. Yahweh gave him a song. David's entirely focused upon God and what he's done. We should appreciate how God-centered David's description of his deliverance is. David takes no credit for his deliverance. It's all of the Lord. And, And too often... Right? We cry out to the Lord with a sense of, you know, all I need is just a little boost, right? a little, little pick-me-up, just a little bit to kind of get me through, get me out of this little nudge from the Lord, and I can, I can take it from there. In other words, we, we don't really understand our need for deliverance. We, we, we don't understand, we don't understand that the pit we're really in and just how helpless we really are. But David did. And so when he is delivered, all praise goes to God. And verse 3 lets us in on a little truth that we often forget. You see there, others are watching. Uh, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord, David says. Others are watching as we are waiting upon the Lord, they're watching our waiting. Do they see our total dependence? Do they see our patient waiting in faith? Do they see us drawing near to God, crying out to Him? How we endure and how we wait and how we hope and how we trust God for deliverance can be used by God to generate trust, cultivate faith in others. Christian, never forget that others are watching and that God can use your struggles to save others, to serve others. Your struggles are useful in God's hands. You may not like your struggles. And that's understandable. But remember that the Lord may use your struggles as you wait in faith. Wait upon Him. God can use your deliverance from a past pit to generate trust in others. And the reverse is also true, isn't it? When we wait poorly, others can see that too. Let's purpose to wait patiently and pray that God will be pleased to use it to generate trust in others. Verses four and five continue this theme of trust, while at the same time presenting a contrast. David is reminding us that the most blessed man, that the happiest man, is the man who makes the Lord his trust. There are different ways to try to get out of a pit. You can trust in God. Or you can trust in man. David is teasing out the implications for us of his past experience here in verses four and five. He is in a a backhanded way telling us that we ought to trust God for our deliverance. He makes it plain to us that it's folly to trust in the proud and the arrogant who think that they can rescue themselves from a pit. They're only going after a lie. The scriptures plainly teach that you cannot save yourself. You're lying to yourself. If you think that you can get out Of the pits that you fall into or that you walk into in this life. David calls us to learn from his experience of being rescued out of the pit. And he even broadens his view to include the experience of the people of Israel. Do you see in verse 5 how he pluralizes the rescued now? Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord, Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. You see what David's doing here. He's calling worshipers, he's calling singers, the gathered congregation to remember how God rescued Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. He's calling to remember how he fed them from heaven, how he brought them across the Jordan, how he conquered the promised land. David is inviting his fellow worshipers to do what he did in verses 1 to 3, to remember the wonderful deeds of the Lord. God has done so many of them and it's abundantly clear to David that God's great deeds outnumber and outstrip all the other so-called gods. David even underscores the multitude of God's deeds through his poetic hyperbole there at the end of verse 5. David saying, look, I'm, I'm going to tell everyone all of your deeds, but there are actually just too many for me to tell. Christian, think about your own life for a moment. Is this not true of you? Has God, has not God done so many things for you? Has He not performed so many wonderful deeds that it would be impossible for you to recount them all? Well, at least try to recount some, right? Let's, um, let's not skip Thanksgiving and go right to Christmas. At least recount some, take some time during this month, especially a month that our culture supposedly pauses to give thanks and truly give thanks to God for His work in your life. Maybe even take some time this afternoon and remember what God has done for you. Remember and rejoice. Remember the various pits that He's rescued you from. Remember the pit of hell that He's rescued you from. Remember the pit of being a spiritual orphan Remember the pit of despair. Remember the pit of anxiety. Remember the pit of distress. Remember the various pits he has rescued from in this life. Even this past week, you were anxious about something on Tuesday. By the way, it's Sunday. You made it through. And the Lord has brought you out of it. Remember and rejoice. Remember and obey. That's what verses 6 to 8 are keying in on. You see, for David, his reflection upon his past deliverance reminded him that God's deliverance, God's rescue, brought about a desire to obey the Lord. Salvation, it, it cultivates gratitude and furthers sanctification through obedience. David acknowledges the Lord's pleasure in obedience through rather kind of stark terms. Twice he says that God has not delighted or required sacrifices Sacrifice and offering. But this is not precisely true, is it? I mean, of course God required sacrifice and offering. We know that from the book of Leviticus, right? So how can David say burnt offering and sin offering you have not required? Well, let's remember that we're reading poetry here. And that poets often use sharply contrasting language to make a point. Let's also remember that David is reflecting upon his past deliverance. When God delivers His people, what does He really want? Does He really want a sheep or a goat? Is that what He really wants for us? Does He really want our money? Does He want our possessions? Is that why God delivers us? No. He wants our whole person. A sacrifice of self. That's what the phrase, but you have given me an open ear, communicates. Now there are, are, are two ways this phrase communicates total dedication On the one hand, the phrase open ear brings to mind uh, the idea when slaves in the Old Testament decided to give themselves to lifelong service to their masters. You see, in ancient Israel, when one, one fell on hard times, he could enlist himself as a household slave to another Hebrew. And after he paid off his debt or after a period of time, a set period of time, he could go free. But if he found the relationship with his master to be beneficial, then a slave could ask for a lifelong arrangement of service to his master and if the master and the slave agreed the master would take him over to the doorpost of the home and put in a hole an opening through his ear probably his earlobe that opening was a symbol of his total commitment his dedication to his master and his master's house he was giving his life to serving there but there's actually another and complementary way to understand this phrase probably closer to what the author is is mainly intending, uh, that phrase, but you've made me an open ear. You've given me an open ear. In your Bible, you, you might find a little footnote there in the text next to this phrase, something that says like, uh, in the Hebrew, ears you have dug for me. Here is the, uh, the idea, something akin to God has kind of dug the wax out of my ears. Like parents know this, right? No, no, dig out your ears so that you're hearing me. Are you listening to me? The Lord is kind of Opened his ears. He's dug them out. In the Hebrew, listening is connected to obedience. Um, It's almost synonymous sometimes. We hear to heed. We listen to obey. And what's interesting is that this stretch of verses, it's quoted in the New Testament. We read them earlier in the service, quoted by the the writer to the Hebrews. Part of what he says here in Psalm 40, here in 6 to 8, he says, uh, this is about Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 the the author of Hebrews he quotes the the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint it's commonly denominated by uh, as you see it maybe written down somewhere LXX which means the Septuagint and the uh, keep keep your eyes on uh, on Psalm 40 verse 6 as I read what the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 10 verse 5 the writer of Hebrews says this consequently when Christ came into the world he said and here's the quote Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You' probably notice the discrepancy, the apparent discrepancy, we should say. Uh, after all, how do we get from David, uh, but you have given me an open ear here in Psalm 40 to uh, "A body you have prepared for me? How do we move from an ear to a body? Well, as I said, the writer of the Hebrews, he quotes the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And clearly those translating the Hebrew of psalm 40 to the greek understood that they were translating a kind of a a hebrew idiom an expression Uh, there are different idioms different specialized expressions in different languages so for example uh, someone might say i'm just mashing your taters right or or i'm just pulling your leg to communicate i'm I'm not serious just kidding so the translators were, were trying to bring the hebrew old testament into a greek Context: they were looking for an idea in the Greek which would communicate what the Hebrew, you have given me an open ear, meant. They knew that the phrase, uh, you have given me an open ear, meant total obedience. The lifelong servant to the will of God. So they they translated, a body you have prepared to me. And I think this gives us a beautiful insight on the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. From Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, we learn that Jesus was totally devoted totally obedient to God the Father. He was the faithful, lifelong servant as Isaiah prophesied. He was ready to give his whole body to God the Father. He, he had his ear always turned to what God the Father had to say and was always ready to hear and to heed. He was ready to offer his life. And though God did not require of him burnt offerings and sin offerings because he had no sin, he was ready to offer his whole life and body as A living sacrifice to God for us and for our salvation. His ear was totally open. He was eager to listen. Eager to do what was written about him in the Old Testament. He was eager to do what was written written of him in the scroll of the book there in verse 7. He was eager, ready, and willing to live the law of God for us. It was his heart's delight. Verse 8. This was part of Jesus' joy. So that he might rescue us from the miry pit. And having been rescued from the miry pit, it should be our heart's chief delights to do the will of God. Having been rescued from the miry pit, we should have open ears. Ears inclined and turned toward our God and His Word. So let us learn this lesson from David. He was rescued from a temporal pit of destruction. But because of Jesus, we have been rescued from an eternal pit of destruction. And if such a rescue, such a temporal rescue, encouraged David to obey the Lord, shouldn't God's rescue of us in Jesus Christ lead us to do the same? Dear Christian, remember your deliverance and obey with a glad heart. Remember your deliverance and be provoked to proclaim God's mercy. That's what verses 9 and 10 teach us. David told others about how God rescued him. He told the gathered congregation, verse 9, It is one of the great privileges, one of our great privileges as a church family, to hear the testimonies of saints before their baptisms. In their testimonies, they proclaim the the glad news of deliverance before the congregation. The same is true for brothers we we nominate to serve as elders. We ask them to share their testimonies because it's good and right for each and every one of us to reveal, to, to revel in. God's great deliverance, to speak of His faithfulness and salvation. The Scriptures call us, they command us, to go and tell the good news of Jesus to others. So are we we concealing the steadfast love of our God? Or are we being provoked to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, the, the degree to which we revel in our redemption is probably the degree to which we will reveal the glad news of Jesus to others. Because God's deliverance provokes proclamation. Part of the reason that we find ourselves perhaps in a lull in our evangelism sometimes is because we haven't been meditating on the evangel of the gospel of Jesus, how he's rescued us and delivered us. Be like David. Go back and revisit your redemption. Revisit your rescue. Revisit not only your saving rescue, But also revisit those times the Lord God delivered you from trials of various kinds. Tell others about those deliverances too. Particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. It will encourage their faith as they're in the midst of a pit. Help them trust and further their obedience. We've looked back on David's past waiting. And now we turn to consider David's present waiting. That's our second point, what we're turning to now. This is one of the interesting features of this psalm. Um, Often, psalms move from trouble to trust, as one commentator's famous for saying. But Psalm 40, in a sense, moves from trust to trouble. David's present circumstance is one of trouble. Read Psalm 40, verses 11 to 17 now. As for you... O Lord Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord Yahweh, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord Yahweh. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Well, with verse 11, David shifts, his mind shifts toward the future, the present. He is persuaded that God will not restrain or withhold his mercy from him. God has been faithful to David in the past, and David's persuaded that God will be faithful. He's even being faithful now in his present waiting. And in these verses, David pleads with God to deliver him, verses 11 to 13. And coupled with that is the defeat of his enemies, you see there in verses 14 and 15. Meanwhile, David prays for the faith and joy of God's people while revealing his own faith, there in verses 16 and 17. In verses 11 to 13, you see there, David pleads with God to deliver him. And consider the transition from verse 10 to verse 11. Verse 10, it propounds a kind of, as for me, a kind of mentality. Look, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. But by verse 11, we get, as for you. David has not restrained his lips, verse 9. And now he says that God will not restrain his mercy, verse 11. Verse 11. He goes further in the second half of verse 11. David declares that God will keep his steadfast love and faithfulness. David is declaring what he knows to be true of God. When he speaks of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, he is invoking the the covenant character of God. This is language, terms. It's reminding us of God's covenant commitment to his people. God has made promises to his people and as David, he is holding on to the covenant-keeping character of God. That's his hope. Now, the truth is, we're, we're not quite into David's plea yet in verse 11. Right now, David is simply making kind of declarative statements. And this is instructive. He's clinging to the character of God. God is, frankly, the only stable one in all of the world. God is the only steadfast one. We're all, we're all fickle, aren't we? We all change. Change our minds. The only immovable one. And the one that we can be sure that his love will never fail is God. We can be sure that he will keep his promises. When you're in a pit of despair, cling to the character of God. With verse 12, David reveals what has gotten him into this present pit. Evils have encompassed David. and They are, are beyond number. Sadly, David... Has committed iniquities. Notice the, the plural there. Notice that David says that he has committed so many of them. More than the hair on his head. In verse 5, David said that, that God's wondrous deeds were too many to be recounted and proclaimed. And now in verse 7, that David says that his sins are too many to count. Just stop and think about David's honesty here. Uh, he takes responsibility for his sin. He he owns up to the fact that he is a sinner and that his sins have, have mounted up to the heavens. Too often we, we think about our sin, like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've done just a few things here and there. But friends, our sins have mounted up to the heavens. There are so many of them. And sin, as we see here, it drags you down into a pit. Uh, sin takes an emotional, perhaps even physiological toll as well. David is overwhelmed by his sin. But be careful to notice this. David confesses that they are his iniquities. David doesn't shift blame. No, he says, it's all on me. Like, this is my fault. My iniquities have overtaken me. David's honest about the consequences of his sin. And by all of this, we can also see that sin is not something that we can overcome on our own. David needs to be rescued. Are you honest about your sin? There's there's no qualification or equivocation or blame shifting here. When sin is identified in your life, do do you flatly say, you're right, I've sinned. Period. I've sinned. I was wrong, I was sinfully angry, I used harsh words, you are right, I sin. Do you own your sin? Or, or do you think and say, you're right, I have sinned, but here's the thing, like, you provoked me with your comment? Or do you, do you say things like, you're right, I, I, I've sinned, but, but you've got to give me credit for kind of these other positive things that I just did. Do, do you think or say things like, you're right, I've sinned, but, but you've sinned too in exactly the same way. You're pointing your finger, but you've got four coming back at you, or three, however many it is. <laughs> do, you, do you say things like, you're right, I've sinned, but there, there was nothing else I could do. I, I had to do that. David doesn't qualify. There's another thing that David doesn't do. He doesn't say to God, look, look this is unfair, He doesn't say, I don't deserve this. He knows that the afflictions he endures as a consequence for sins, his sins, are just. David's difficulties are the fruit of his sins. He recognizes that. It's it's strange that so often we fail to recognize this in our lives. And we fail to recognize it because we're probably too busy equivocating or justifying or blame shifting. And worse, accusing God. David owned his sin and confessed it. Do we? If you really own your sin, I think you'll be overwhelmed by it. Like David was. Are you overwhelmed by your sin? Overwhelmed with sorrow, not for the difficulty your sin has brought upon you, but because by your sin you have not loved God or your neighbor as you ought. If you're overwhelmed by your sin, you need to know that there is one who can overcome your sin. David points us to him there in verse 13. David turns to God and he pleads with God to deliver him and help him. The only way out of our sin is the only one who can overcome it. And that is God. Look at his prayer there in verse 13. Be pleased O Lord Yahweh, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. As in his past, in his present waiting, David turns to the only one who can help, to the only one who can deliver him from his destructive sin. Did you notice that even in his plea, David was submissive to the will of God? Did you notice that in his prayer there? He didn't presume his deliverance was God's will, but he asked that his deliverance would be in accordance with God's will. He prayed, be pleased. O Lord Yahweh, we can and should pray like this. We should pray, Father, we ask that it would be your will to deliver us from this muddy and miry pit. Are your requests submitted to the perfect good and sovereign will of God? And David asks God not to delay, but to make haste. I, I love that. Have you ever asked God to be quick about it? Lord, would you just be quick about this? Would you, would you make haste? Have you ever prayed, Lord, make haste to help me? Or perhaps you prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You almost wonder if part of the help that David needs has already been given in, in, in kind of the revealing of his sin. Sometimes God help, God's help initially comes to us in the form of confrontation. It's a mercy of God to confront us with our sin and then to beckon us to himself for comfort. David has been confronted with his sin, and now he cries out for comfort, for relief, for rescue. And in verses 14 and 15, David issues forth another petition. He asks that God would shame those who have shamed him, that God would dishonor those who've dishonored him. David's enemies have enjoyed seeing him suffer, they have delighted in his difficulty, but they ought to be ashamed. It is surely sinful and unloving to rejoice in another's misfortunes. What is more, we see in verse 14 that these enemies, they seek to snatch away his life. As we've thought about before, David is not seeking revenge. He's not vindictive or bitter. Rather, as the king of God's people, he knows that his defeat means the defeat of God's promises to send a son who will reign on his throne forever. David's enemies are God's enemies and so David is essentially asking Yahweh to do what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 to curse those who curse God's people and to bless those who bless God's people and unsurprisingly this blessing of God's people emerges there in verse 16 do you see it isn't it striking that in the midst of his present waiting David turns outward to consider the welfare of God's people in the midst of his overwhelming difficulty David turns and He's concerned about others around him. There is a sense in which verse 16 is even a prayer. David prays that those who seek the Lord would rejoice, be glad in God, and praise His name. What about us? In our our miry bogs, are we consumed with ourselves? Or are we concerned about others? In your desperate situation, are you praying not only for yourself, but also for others? In your desperate situation, are you, are you looking around to love and serve others and encourage their faith? How are you in your miry bog encouraging others to declare, great is the Lord Yahweh? If God has brought you low, or if you have descended into, pit, into a pit because of your sin, look around, look around For someone else to help in the faith. Find someone else to read the Bible with. To pray with. To meet a practical need. Turn up at Bible study or small group. Stick your nose in the text. Give all your attention to the Word. So that you might help another person say. Great is the Lord. Give yourself to listening. To the wants and the needs and the hurts. And the happenings of others. Don't turn inward. Turn outward toward others and turn upward to God. That's what David does there in verse 17. This psalm begins and ends with David looking at God. It began with David pondering his past waiting in God's divine deliverance. And now it ends with David's honest assessment. He is poor and needy. He is poor and needy. And David has hope. He cannot rescue himself from his present circumstance. But David's hope is in that phrase. You see it there. The Lord takes thought for me. Isn't that a sweet phrase? The Lord thinks on me. The Lord God cares for his sheep. And consider how personal and persuaded David's faith is in the closing words of the psalm. You are you are, you are my help. You're my deliverer. God is David's help. God is David's deliverer. David is holding on to God. God has been David's deliverer in the past, and he will be David's deliverer in the present. There are only two ways out of this pit. Either for God to deliver David from his trouble, or for God to deliver David to his everlasting presence through death. There are only two ways out of this pit. Either for God to deliver David from his trouble or for God to deliver David to his everlasting presence through death. Christian, if you're in a pit, you need not despair. For God is your deliverer. You're going to get out of it, one way or another. You may have to wait in your deliverance but you've waited before the Lord God will be faithful again keep waiting friend if you're here this morning you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ I wonder how you think about how Psalm 40 applies to you have you thought about how this Psalm speaks to you do you know that you're like David in his present waiting did you know that you're drowning in a pit of your sin? Did you know that you're in need? Friend, like David, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from Jesus, we are all in danger of drowning in a flood of God's eternal wrath. But the good news of Psalm 40 is that Jesus has come to rescue the poor and the needy, the weakest, the vilest, the helpless. Jesus came to rescue sinners like you and me. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. As we thought about earlier, he had an open ear to God the Father and always did his will. David, as we see from verse 12, he did not always do God's will. David's not the Savior. David did not always have an open ear, but Jesus did. Having lived a sinless life, Jesus went to the cross and the scriptures teach us that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, Jesus bore the punishment that was due to our sin. And if you can believe it, while he was hanging on the cross, suffering the shameful shameful death, people standing around him mocked him, saying, aha, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus did not survive the cross. He died. He went down into the pit of death. And there, his body waited and waited and waited for three days. And on the third day, on a Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago, God the Father drew Jesus up from that pit of destruction. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. Will you see and fear? Will you turn from your sin? And put your trust in the Lord Jesus. His past deliverance. His resurrection from the dead. Is your only hope. Of being being delivered. From the pit of sin. That you're presently drowning in. Friend the good news of the Bible. Is that God has delivered Jesus. And that he can deliver you through Jesus. What he has done before. He can do again. Pray verse 13. Pray be pleased O Lord. To deliver me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. If that is your heart's genuine plea, then you can be assured like David was in verse 17. You can be persuaded that God is your help and your deliverer. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you going to do when you find yourself in a pit again? What should you do if you're in a pit now? Learn from David Remember the last time God delivered you. Remember what He did before and patiently plead for Him to do it again. Especially remember how God delivered you from the eternal damnation to eternal salvation. Remember how God delivered you from that pit. Meditate on your deliverance and remember that we can trust our God. Meditate on God's gracious deliverance and obey His Word with a glad heart with a heart full of gratitude. Remember God's deliverance and tell someone about how He delivered you from destruction. When you're in a pit again, if you're in a pit now, plead with God to deliver you again. Ask Him. Ask Him for the grace to wait patiently and ask Him to work hastily. In the end, remember that He is your deliverer. Remember that He will deliver you. It was always and only him that delivered you before. It will be always and only him that delivers you again. You see, with God, it is always before and always again. Let's pray together.